Welcome to Wholehearted Recovery, where we encourage practicing self-compassion through eating recovery in a disordered world. Please remember that our podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for treatment. If you feel that you need extra support, please seek the guidance of a trained professional. I'm your host, Rachel Mann. Joining me today are Amber DeGarmo and Catherine Short from Reedy River Counseling Associates. Ladies, thank you for joining us. First, let's talk about what exactly is an eating disorder. What does that entail? What's the difference between that and just some disordered habits? Catherine, can you tell us a little bit about that? I can. So in looking at your just basic Google definition of eating disorder, it reads, any of a range of psychological disorders characterized by abnormal or disturbed eating habits. Obviously, there's several, and we'll kind of get into those as the show goes on. But one thing that I tell kind of new clients or parents that come in when they're asking about, like, is this really a problem, that kind of thing, which typically it is if they're coming to see us. <laughs> but when do the symptoms become clinical? Meaning, like, when do they start to disrupt your life? kind of thing. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit before too. It can be either your kind of own intrinsic knowledge of that. If it's both an eating disorder, it can be complicated because it's also, you know, it's a physical thing and a mental thing that you might not be able to recognize that it's messing with your life. Kind of like an alcoholic, you know, mm-hmm. can't step outside and look at it kind of thing sometimes. So are other people also noting this is interfering with your life and who you really are and the things you want to do. So I would say that's a big thing that stands out to me, like how it's interfering with their life. Yeah, definitely. So for a few examples, we had a client a while back who did not see that it was contributing negatively to her life in any way. But instead of spending time with her friends and college roommates for a retreat that they were having, she stayed back multiple times over the weekend to exercise because she felt like they were eating too much while they were out. So the her previous roommates were able to speak to that and say, what is going on? Why are you not spending time with us? And that was when she chose to come in and get some help. And had they not said that, she did not realize that it had gotten to the point that it was negatively affecting her. Yeah, I think that's great to point out because I know for me personally, when I was going to karate, going to workout class, going to run, you know, it never occurred to me how much I was missing out. And we talked a little bit about that last episode, but how much I was missing out on things because that was my focus. Mm -hmm. And even you talked about not recognizing when I started seeing Christina and then she had me seeing Myra. At some point, Myra said something, well, that's because you're an exercise addict. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, I didn't even have a clue. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So next thing, let's talk about specifically what are some of the eating disorders recognized in the DSM. First, tell us a little bit, Amber, about what is the DSM and then some of the ones that are recognized by the DSM. Yeah, absolutely. So the DSM is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual that most therapists and psychologists go by in terms of you know, diagnosing really, I mean, anything that would be considered a mental health illness. So the eating disorders that are mentioned, the DSM, I'll go through a list and then kind of overview them a little bit more, is PICA, Rumination Disorder, 
avoidant or restrictive food intake disorder, also known as ARPID, that's what most people refer to it as, anorexia and bulimia, and then OSFED or other specified feeding or eating disorder and binge eating disorder, and then unspecified feeding or eating disorder. Okay, so let's go back and start with, I'll just give a brief overview of some of these um, first few ones. So pica, it's eating things that are not food, such as chalk, toilet paper, wood chips, etc. Like a lot of dirt, dirt, yeah. Yeah, and so these things are non-nutritive, meaning your body doesn't gain nutrition from having them, but you crave them all the same. The rumination disorder, this definition is from NIDA's website, National Eating Disorder Association. It involves regurgitating a food that occurs for at least one month. The food may be re-chewed, re-swallowed, or spit out. When someone regurgitates their food, they do not appear to be making an effort, nor do they appear to be stressed, upset, or disgusted. So I think that that is a huge piece of it is like it's not upsetting to them that the food is being rechewed or being re-swallowed or any of those things. It is not due to a medical condition. It does not occur in the course of anorexia or bulimia. It is a disorder in and of itself. So I just felt like that was a little bit more to the point than what the SM said. Okay, perfect. So getting into ARFID a little bit, that really is an avoidance of food based on the sensory characteristics of it or concerns about consequences that could happen from eating that food, usually negative, such as choking or throwing up. Like yeah. they had an experience where they got sick with a food and now they are scared to eat. Right. That's happened. Right. Yeah. And so with... All of those things, also they experience weight loss, they also experience some deficiencies in their nutrition, and may need some type of tube to do the feeding for them because they are not able to get an appropriate amount of nutrition on their own. And it contributes to them not being able to go to school, to function with friends, have normal meals, things like that. Anything that you would add to that? Yeah, I think this one is particularly confusing, especially for other providers. Like, we'll have people call, maybe a doctor or something, and say, like, they've lost weight, but, like, it has nothing to, like, they're not trying to lose weight, and, like, they said they say they're okay with eating. They're not, like, scared of eating, you know. A lot of times these people will eat kind of bland foods, so they'll eat, you know, maybe, like, french fries or something like that, which is not your typical of what you would think of, stereotypical restrictor, someone losing weight. So I think it can be kind of a confusing diagnosis sometimes. I mean, even for us. Yeah. And then hashing out, too, sometimes something will present like this, but really the disordered thoughts are under there somewhere. <laughs> right. And, like, with the French fries or the bland foods, people immediately think that a person with an eating disorder isn't going to want, like, those fat things. Right, right, right. So like, like, this isn't an eating disorder. Yeah. yeah. Where... Really, it might be because that may be all that they are consuming right. because that's all that's palatable to right. them. And if you, you know, imagine if most people with ARFID, I would say, are eating less than a range of 20 foods. That is not stated in the DSM, but that is what I have heard. It's like 20-ish is around the number. If you're only eating 20 foods, you're missing a lot of nutrients yeah. out there. And so it is going to affect you long term. It's going to have the same consequences medically as, say, anorexia. 
Okay, so jumping into anorexia, when people hear the term eating disorder, this is usually what people think about. It is a severe restriction of food intake or energy intake that leads to a significantly low body weight, an intense fear of gaining weight or of becoming fat, persistent behaviors that interfere with weight gain, even though they are at a significantly low weight, and a disturbance in the way that they experience or see their weight as we were saying earlier, even though other people in their life may be telling them that they're noticing a weight loss, they don't believe it. They don't see that it's an issue or a problem. Anything that y'all would add to that or would want people to know about anorexia? You know, I mean, just getting into kind of the subtypes, the restricting type is obviously the one that we think about with anorexia, but they can be binge eating, purging type. So, which is confusing, and we'll talk about bulimia. It looks like bulimia, but they're also underweight which actually makes it very dangerous. And the DSM does also specify like severity within BMI. There used to be a BMI under the diagnosis that right. I took away. Yeah. It just says significantly low weight, which in some ways is better because it's a little more ambiguous. You know what I mean? When it comes to someone that really fits this criteria, but they used to not meet the BMI criteria. Right. Well, and do you think, this is just a general question, do you think that you run into more resistance from those and they that fall under anorexia because like you mentioned previously how the brain is undernourished because they're not eating enough do you think that leads to more resistance of wanting treatment oh absolutely all the time we have that story of people coming in and saying but i'm not that thin or my bmi is still normal or sometimes they'll even say i'm overweight on the bmi which Actually, they're not. <laughs> Oftentimes, sometimes they are, though. And therefore, they don't think it's as severe, or their family won't think it's as severe. And so it's just went under the radar for a long time. But for sure, I mean, a brain that is, if you're underweight, you're not thinking correctly about things. So it can be really difficult. It's where we have to pull in support, family members, and other providers to help us. You know, and honestly, being an outpatient, you know, a lot of people that come in with anorexia, depending on severity, a lot of them do go on to do a high level of care. Yeah, if you're meeting these criteria in a real way and you can made it outpatient. So. And just as far as timeline, the DSM specifies for three months or longer. So if this behavior has been going on for more than three months, then it is diagnosable as anorexia. So moving on to bulimia, recurrent episodes of binge eating characterized by the following. Eating an amount of food that is definitely larger than what most individuals would eat in a similar period of time, usually within two-hour periods under similar circumstances and a feeling of lack of control over eating during the episode that is followed by inappropriate compensating behaviors to prevent weight gain, such as vomiting, um, misuse of laxatives, diuretics, fasting, or excessive exercise. This also is for three months, but occurs at least once a week for three months. So, going around the same timeline for anorexia as far as when it's clinically diagnosable. Do you think that, not because uh, my personal experience, but as uh, someone I know, do you think this is one of the easier ones to cover up because they're not always that very thin person because they do eat and people see them eat, mm -hmm. but they don't realize that they're compensating in other ways to get rid of that food? Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. It 
it can be much easier to cover up for an extended amount of time than other eating disorders might be. And especially, and I don't know, if Catherine, if you would agree with this, but I have seen in my practice that people who use these other forms of compensating, such as excessive exercise, such as diuretics, you know, someone coming in drinking loads of coffee every day and being fearful not to do that because then they would gain weight, they don't realize that that's purging in and of itself. Right. People right. hear purging and they immediately think self-induced vomiting. And right. we would actually look at purging as any type of compensating behavior for the purpose of weight loss. Yeah, totally. I think that can be a little bit confusing for people to identify. And just speaking to that, yeah, for sure, I think it's hard to see sometimes something like bulimia because these are all hidden behaviors. Like, you know, a binge is typically a very shameful act that you would do. You know, a lot of people do it at night or, you know, in a room or something. And then, you know, obviously something like purging you can hide. And exercise seems very normal to everyone, you know what I mean? So I think it can be. It's a particularly difficult I think with people that are maybe throwing up or using laxatives, I've had some experiences with clients like this because they can actually make themselves gain weight through these behaviors. And so to get them to stop doing these behaviors, once they're gaining weight, already doing the behaviors, even though that's what's making them gain weight, can be really confusing for a person. So I think that's a hard marker of this one. Well, and I want to talk about dangers in a little bit, but I don't think people realize how dangerous the purging can be. And I think it was in one of Jenny Schaefer's book, The Almost Anorexic, maybe. And she talks about a girl who was exercising a lot and vomiting and her electrolytes were really out of balance. And she went to bed and didn't wake up. I think that was in her book. But I never realized how dangerous those things could be until I started investigating. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. So I think most people think, well, what's the big deal? Right, like I'm eating. Right, yeah. So moving on to binge eating disorder. So we actually, you know, kind of hit on the definition of binge eating disorder during our Thanksgiving episode a little bit as we were talking about, like, Thanksgiving being an appropriate time for our culture to binge because we're, as a culture, so disordered in other ways that we restrict so often that when we have a day, we can eat anything that we want. Oftentimes, people eat uncontrollably. We went into that a little bit, but to give a little bit further of an explanation, like I said earlier, with the bulimia definition, an amount of food that's larger than what most people would eat in a similar period of time, but marked by a sense of lack of control over eating during the episode, feeling that you cannot stop or control how much you are eating. And it is typically associated with eating more rapidly than normal, eating until feeling uncomfortably full, eating large amounts of food when not feeling physically hungry, eating alone because of the embarrassment, as we were saying earlier, shame by how much you were eating, and then feeling disgusted with oneself or very guilty afterwards. And this binge eating causes a lot of distress. And like bulimia, at least once a week for three months to make it clinically significant. So as we're like kind of talking about this idea of clinical significance, if it hasn't been going on for three months, but it's becoming an issue in your life, it still matters and it still needs to be treated. I'm only referring to this in terms of what is in the DSM. Yeah, I mean, the DSM is simply 
symptoms. So it should, there has to be some way to define things. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean that, you know, between, I don't know, two and a half months and three months, something like magical happens. <laughs> they just had to have a cutoff at some point. So. Yeah. yeah. So moving on to OSFED, this is a little bit of the catch-all of the eating disorders. What we see often in this subgroup is atypical anorexia. So a person who meets all of the symptoms of anorexia under the DSM description, but does not meet the significant weight loss piece or their weight continues to be within or above normal range. And then bulimia, that the frequency is lower than once a week for three months or has not yet hit three months, but it's still happening. Like what we were saying earlier, even if it hasn't hit three months, it still matters. It's still clinically significant. So as far as like charting, it would still fall under the OSFED category until we hit the three-month marker. And then same with binge eating disorders, just lower frequency or not enough time to hit that three-month marker. And then purging disorder, where a person is just regularly purging to influence their weight. And then night eating syndrome. So I would be surprised personally if night eating syndrome isn't in the next version of the DSM as its own diagnosis in and of itself, just like we talked about last time, like orthorexia probably will be too, if I were guessing, but we don't know. We don't know these things. So it is waking up during the night while you're sleeping and then consuming an excessive amount of food after the evening meal. So you have already eaten your meals for the day and then wake up in the middle of the night and go and eat more in an excessive amount. It is not better explained by any other situations happening in your life, like anxiety causing you to wake, anything like that. Like it is specifically for the purpose of eating. And I do have some questions later. We'll come back to OSFED. But what I want to ask you now is, can some of these co-occur? Or can people morph from one eating disorder to another. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that the DSM defines them in such a way so they can't co-occur because it always says, like, it's not, you know, what's that little disclaimer of each one that it's not associated with, you know, the other disorders or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But not to say, you know, I think that OSFED kind of catches when they're, like, all mixed in together. But for sure, people can morph and change within eating disorders. I'm trying to think at the conference we were recently at when they were talking about the likelihood, it's definitely more typical for a binge purger to become an anorexic than an anorexic to become a binge purger. Do you remember that point? That was <laughs> Anyways, I think that was one of the things that they said as far as like patterns of like how people mm-hmm. might may morph into things. Yeah. So what we have seen is that, okay, so this is going into a little deeper than what some people may want to know, but there is some clinical knowledge in terms of something called the temperament character inventory, the TCI. It has five different groups of temperament, and it is normal and highly likely for anorexics, people with anorexia, and people with binge eating disorder to have a harm avoidant temperament, So the temperament makes up the behaviors. So a harm avoidant temperament consists of someone who is highly perfectionistic, 
highly people pleaser. They are usually pretty passive in their communication style, like to avoid conflict at all costs, do not want to rock the boat in any way whatsoever. And so that person holds the characteristics that can morph into anorexia or can morph into binge eating disorder, where a person who develops bulimia nervosa usually has some characteristic traits that is considered novelty seeking and is a little bit more sporadic, impulsive, impulsive, like high excitability, Mm -hmm. low threshold for reward, like easily feels reward. Going off of that information that we have seen, like these patterns, I do think that it would be more rare for a person to fully switch since temperament is ingrained, you were born with it, it's not something that you develop throughout your life. I think that it would be more difficult for a person to completely change their temperament, even if they are having some of the behaviors from another disorder. So that's not to say that a person who is in the throes and the depth of their anorexia couldn't do some purging. Absolutely. They could, they probably will, if the eating disorder is in the driver's seat. But that's usually not where a person with a harm avoidant temperament is going to start. They're not usually going to start with the purging. Okay, let's talk about the eating disorders that are not recognized by the BSM. So Catherine, we'll let you take the lead on that one. Yeah, I think the biggest one to kind of touch on is orthorexia. It's kind of the healthy eater preoccupation with being healthy. And they may be into like bad diets, interested in exercise, but it kind of crosses a line of starting to be not just like they want to do it, they need to do it, I think is always like a good differentiation. It's time consuming. Um, Like you said in the beginning, it's maybe taking them away from things or they're having to sacrifice things to engage in this kind of healthy lifestyle. And I think for us, it's really confusing because It's also very praised in our culture and confusing for them and maybe their family members because it looks so good. Right, because it looks like yeah, it looks like you're eating healthy, working out maybe a lot of times with orthorexia, Mm -hmm. right? And so you do get a lot of praise, and you are at least for a while losing weight, getting in shape, and everybody's cheering you on, including the doctors. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I think, you know, like, as we were saying earlier, like, what is the difference between a person who has some disordered behaviors for a time period versus having an actual eating disorder? I think that a lot of people could hear this definition and say, well, isn't that majority of America right now? And in a lot of ways, yeah. yeah. But then in another dance, how much is it affecting your life? Like, are you refusing to go to eat in a restaurant because they use vegetable oil instead of olive oil or coconut oil? Like, are you refusing to go to Starbucks because they use regular milk? And they don't have the specific type of almond milk that you like. Though they do have almond milk now. They didn't for a while. <laughs> that was a big thing with orthorexics was mm-hmm. that they only served soy milk for a long time. Uh-huh. And it had to be the almond. You know, so things like yeah. that. Of like, is it contributing to your life in the point that you are not going out to eat with friends? You are not participating in your life as you would. Or maybe even doing strange things like taking your own food places or being very particular about how you want the restaurant to prepare the food 
Right. And even being with family over the friends and hovering over the person that's cooking, asking what they're putting into it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I mean, maybe we have opinions, but I always tell people like the ability to be a normal eater is going over to someone's house for a dinner party and in general being able to eat what they cook. You know, obviously we have preferences and that kind of thing, but like for the most part, you can pretty much, you know, eat what people make and that's kind of I don't know, something that stands out to me when it comes to just, like, defining something that's getting a little bit off or something that's, like, a little bit, you know, more clinical. And I think with orthorexia, too, it can start off as this kind of maybe innocent desire desire to be healthy and can turn into anorexia where then it just snowballs and they're losing lots of weight and then become really preoccupied with it. Or even, you know, it starts out, like, trying to be healthy and maybe it doesn't go quite to anorexia but then you're afraid of lots of different foods that right. you feel like that's that's too unhealthy for me to eat mm-hmm. right oh yeah totally and again i mean going back even if they're not underweight if their brain is not nourished they're not thinking well about the choices they're making and a brain that's not nourished is more rigid too and i think this is one that can fly under the radar like ARFID just in terms of they can not be eating enough but they don't have the marked body image disturbance at the beginning at least orthorexia typically is like we were saying brought on by health benefits health concerns the desire for that but later the body image disturbance can come in and it cannot some people will lose lots of weight and still not have the marked body image disturbance and then some people do like a lot of things middle health it's not always black and white yeah you know there's a lot of gray because people are complex like you know we might talk about this some more later but In one of Jenny Schaefer's books, she talks about when she, you know, I guess she had some diagnoses that changed over time. The time where she had the diagnosis of OSFED, so that kind of a little bit more catch-all diagnosis, was when she was in the most emotional distress versus when she had, you know, I'm not sure which diagnosis she had. Just to make the point that don't think that that means that this isn't serious or that you're not in pain, you know, when you don't perfectly fit into a category. And I don't want to do it right now, but I would like to do a podcast where we talk about the similarities and differences between anorexia and orthorexia. Anorexia, intense fear of food in general, and then orthorexia, the fear is there, but it's more about the health. Yeah, yeah. what type. Yeah, yeah. the quality of the food. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So another one we talked about was compulsive exercise or exercise addiction. Which, I mean, in the eating disorder world, and Amber, you can speak to this too, there is a little bit of people that are kind of leaning towards that there is a real kind of exercise addiction Mm -hmm. and people that are not. So that's kind of still, you know, there's differing opinions and I think research being done and all of that as far as like if we would call that an addiction. But I mean, this is someone you're looking at that, again, just like the orthorexia, they're just obsessed with exercise and compulsive so not able to control you know maybe they're hurt or it's raining or they'd rather do something else but they have this compulsion you know think about like something like OCD they can't stop Mm -hmm. themselves from doing it even with inverse kind of consequences well and I think those two terms kind of get thrown together and, mm-hmm. and I do think there is some relation there. But I think someone can be a compulsive exerciser in the sense that they have to get that workout in that day, mm-hmm. but not necessarily have that addiction part. With the addiction part, it's like you've got to keep doing more and more and more to get that same feeling, that same, mm-hmm. quote, high. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I feel like maybe they talked about that at the Heal conference. Do you yeah, remember that? Did. did she talk they about, did. like, a, yeah, kind of yeah. differentiating those a little bit, maybe? Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was looking at the Anita website today, just in preparation for the podcast this evening. And it, I thought it compared the two. So I was trying to find that. It doesn't, that I see at least, but it does go into a specific definition of compulsive exercise, but not of exercise addiction. And just talks about participating in these activities at inappropriate times or in inappropriate settings. So like we were talking about before, like you're on a friend's weekend and you're staying back and exercising while the rest of your friends are out having fun together, exercising despite having injuries or other medical complications, with it being terribly gross or nasty outside, raining, snowing, and you're still outside running, exercising, intense anxiety, depression. If you're not able to exercise, discomfort with rest or inactivity. I think that's a big one, like just having difficulty laying back and de-stressing and relaxing and then using it as a means of purging or exercising so that you have permission to eat. Yeah, I may have done all of those, every single one of them. (laughs) Yeah, so, and that's part of the thing I was saying, like, I felt like I did and do have that compulsion to do it, but I also would have that drive to do more. Well, mm-hmm. I did an hour yesterday. Now I got to do an hour and a half. Right, right, right. Two hours. Enough. Right, right. And yes, before you know it, it can be. Might not have that. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. and before you know it, without realizing it, you can be up to four or five hours a day. Yeah, and I mean, talking about this, but also just you know, people that struggle with exercise stuff with any eating disorders. So I was checking on that motivation too, which especially in the beginning can be super hard to identify. <laughs> he was oh, talking yeah. on what your motivation is, but like why the need to do that. It's still hard. I've been working on this for what's a while going now. On it's there. still hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like Christina has told me before to think about my motivation, and if that eating disorder is driving right. that, yeah, then do don't go do it. <laughs> It's hard to tell sometimes. Yeah. yeah, it's really hard to tell yeah. sometimes if it's the eating disorder right. or if it's Rachel. You know. Yeah. So Absolutely. that's not always cut and dried. That's no, not always clear. Not. I think that's a skill that takes time. Oh, for sure. And compulsive exercise and exercise addiction can be a part of bulimia. It can be a part of anorexia or orthorexia, but it also can stand alone. And so it doesn't yeah. have to be a part of eating. Right. And disordered eating habits, um, it can stand alone by yeah. itself. And actually, that's a podcast that I'd like to do eventually. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. that same conference you were talking about, she talked about primary versus secondary. And I yeah. don't want to get into that right now. But yeah. it says automatically, if you have an eating disorder, that makes it secondary. But mm-hmm. a lot of the primary characteristics applied to me when we were listening to that talk. Mm-hmm. Come back yeah. to that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a couple others that we'll just kind of hit on. Um, diabulimia, we were saying pretty much Christina was here to speak to this a little bit more since it kind of holds a medical part to it for sure. So these are people with diabetes that may abuse their insulin to kind of control their weight. And specifically type 1 diabetes. Okay, so type 1 diabetes, and I think Amber was going to elaborate a little bit more on this diagnosis. Yeah, so... This person has type 1 diabetes and they deliberately give themselves less insulin than they need for the purpose of weight loss. It's really dangerous. Incredibly, incredibly yeah. dangerous. Sounds like it. Um, so it can relate to lots of issues, but 
specifically ketoacidosis, I think I said it, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. or hyperglycemia, and both of those are life-threatening. They are incredibly, incredibly scary. So those are the big things that we're looking for there. And it is marked by frequent and excessive urination, frequent and excessive thirst, yeah. again, because not getting enough insulin, excessive hunger, high blood glucose level, and fatigue, weakness for doctors or um, medical professionals that may be listening to this. Large amounts of glucose in the urine could be a trigger that this is happening to your patient. And then electrolyte disturbances, severe ketonuria, and low sodium levels. So if you were to get back lab work. And then a couple other ones, so pregorexia, which I actually hadn't heard that term until Christina was saying it last time, even though I've worked with people that meet this kind of, I guess, diagnosis, even though it's not official. So, I mean, it's someone that's pregnant, and it's the presence of anorexia-like symptoms while they're pregnant, which for sure makes sense. All the anxiety that may come along, especially if you have struggled with an eating disorder in the past or have that kind of personality traits or whatever, they may get triggered by pregnancy when there's just a lot out of your control when it comes to the weight. Right. And it's something that's so highly praised. I mean, yeah, I have heard from multiple women saying that they were scolded or threatened mm-hmm. by their GYN about their weight gain. And so it's something that's praised when a person is gaining weight slowly during their pregnancy or not gaining weight. It's seen as like a moral victory, which is incredibly upsetting. And scary. And scary. I mean, you've got a little baby growing. Yeah. That's important. I mean, I've heard people say that their OB threatened them and says, if you come back and you have gained more than two pounds the next time I see you in two weeks then I'm going to put you on a diet or I'm going to go do this or whatever. And like two pounds in two weeks, it's not very much. (laughs) You're pregnant. So, I mean, scary. It's very scary. Yeah, very concerning. Again, something that would want to be monitored in conjunction with their doctor. And the last one we'll just kind of touch on really quick, drunkorexia. It's kind of this idea of restricting food intake or calories so that you can drink without worrying about the calories that are in alcohol, which I mean, my goodness, you can already understand how dangerous this is when you're not eating and then you're drinking your calories. Right. And and one thing I read about that was talking about obviously prevalent on college campuses and it was talking about not just so that you don't get those calories before you have the calories for alcohol, but also using the alcohol in place of food or so that you get that buzz even more intense. That yeah, because you don't, don't have anything on right, your stomach. Right, exactly. Yeah, so yes, it is. It is. <laughs> but it's so real. <laughs> yes, unfortunately. I had someone one time that was in a sorority that I think they were trying to do some type of like safe alcohol talk or something, and they talked about, and they were trying to do something good with it, but they were basically saying like, they saying, oh, like if you drink more then that's more calories or something like that like trying to scare women out of drinking in that way and it was <laughs> so upset <laughs> like this is not the way to approach how to help so people be upsetting. moderate drinkers you know kind of thing but that there is something to say that like you know Christina sometimes will have clients that are like okay but if I want to have a glass of wine like where does that fit my meal plan and it's like that's just kind of like an extra fun thing you yeah. know that doesn't count as like a nutritional like <laughs> 
But see, now that's hard to accept because with weight loss companies, I won't specify, but (laughs) you know, you got to count everything. So that's hard to change that. Yeah. 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 Hard to change that mindset. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I, I remember the case at one point, like that their alcohol use had kept them alive. Like it was the main way that they were getting their caloric intake. Mm -hmm. And without the alcohol use, they probably would have already died, which is just incredibly scary. And it had been going on for a long time without people recognizing what was happening. Okay. So let's talk about when to seek help. What are some of the warning signs? When do you think? Yes, I need help or this person needs help. And like we mentioned, sometimes it's your friends or your family recognizing before you do that something's going on. So, Amber, what do you have to suggest for that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, also, (laughs) I just want to apologize for the formality and some of the things that I've talked about so far. I'm just reading straight from the DSM and I'm going to read straight from the American Psychiatric Guidelines for this. Just because I want to make sure that I'm capturing everything for people that are listening, but obviously want to talk about it a little bit more laid back as well. So, and at some point we've talked about the idea of having a podcast about the levels of care. So we'll speak specifically about the idea of like when to get into outpatient more than like the higher levels of care like a partial hospitalization or residential or straight up inpatient but if you meet the criteria for a higher level of care then you definitely need outpatient at minimum but probably need to go to the higher level of care as soon as possible so okay I would say anything that is like we've said with any of these disorders like if it is causing marked disturbance in your life So if it is causing you not to participate with your friends, with your family, if you're losing interest in things that you would typically enjoy or do because of your relationship with food or because of your relationship with exercise, then it's it's time to seek help. If you're having severe anxiety or depression or guilt or shame around your food intake, it's time to seek help. Um, If you have lost a significant amount of weight, the American Psychiatric Association would define a significant amount of weight for an adolescent as 10% of their body mass, and for an adult at 15% or more would be considered a marked amount of weight. If you have low motivation or poor to fair motivation in your ability to change these behaviors on your own, then it's time to seek help. If you have a support network within your like immediate distance that you can eat with, that you can go to activities with and do all of those things, and you're still not seeing improvement, though you want to see improvement in your eating behaviors, it's time to seek help. If you need supervision at your meals to eat, if you're going to restrict or use a compensating behavior without supervision, it's time to seek help. So, yeah, I mean, really any of those things, but obviously, like, if you feel like something's just not right, maybe just worth getting an assessment. Maybe time just to see someone and see if it is something that you could use help with. I would say once in my career, someone who came in where it wasn't really an eating disorder, you know, mm-hmm. um, actually kind of had to do with her menstrual cycles, and it was, you know, something else that was kind of causing her to lose those, but... I think the vast majority of their like, I don't know, you know what I mean? And they explain it to me. I'm like, this is very clear that this is an issue. So when in doubt, 
<laughs> feels weird or someone that you love thinks that things you're doing are weird. Right. Yeah, sometimes you've just got to trust friends and family. They're mm -hmm. around you because you don't see it. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. hard to believe that, accept that, and then follow through with it. Absolutely. It's hard. It's hard to follow through with it. Well, and you mentioned being on the NIDA website. I was on there earlier, too, and, you know, it was talking about things like cutting out entire food groups, mm -hmm. obsessive, like you said, to the point it affects your daily life, physical signs, being cold all the time, brittle or thinning hair, exhausted all the time, sleep problems, trouble focusing. You know, when I was going through my worst, I mean, I had lost quite a bit, and, of course, the doctor was cheering me on it, but... I was going through every one of those things. I was exhausted all the time. I couldn't focus. As a teacher, I would have my planning period. I couldn't focus to do lesson plans and grading because I just wasn't eating enough. And I was eating. It wasn't that I wasn't eating, but right. I was working out so much <laughs> that I was creating that huge calorie deficit. I remember I told Christina this about the being cold all the time. I could not get warm. I would get in the shower to get warm. I remember one night specifically that... I had on sweatpants, socks, a shirt, a sweatshirt with the hood pulled up, and two blankets, and I still couldn't get one. I think sometimes people think, well, I'm just losing weight, so I'm just colder. But I think that's not if you're that cold. Yeah. <laughs> that's not normal. That's not normal. You're right. Yeah, and I'll say, too, and I know we're not talking as much about, like, physical symptoms or, you know, cause a lot of those are higher level of care, but... A lot of people will go to their doctors for GI issues that are really eating disorders. Right. So that can be kind of something like a warning sign to kind of look for. Like if you are having problems with, you know, stomach pains or, you know, constipation, diarrhea, you know, you're getting up, your stomach's getting upset when you eat things, mm -hmm. that can point towards you might have an issue that you haven't identified yet. Okay, so I have some general questions or thoughts and get your response to them. Okay, so just... Answer as you want to. We mentioned OSFED, and that's the catch-all category. So if my eating disorder falls under the category of OSFED, or it's one of the ones not recognized by the DSM, then it's not really that serious, right? Well, I mean, like we said, like Jenny Schaefer said, as far as, you know, your experience of it is the most important thing. Like, if you're upset and you're not living the life that you want to live or deserve to live, then it's a problem. An OSFED should never be looked at as a lesser than. It's just a different diagnosis that meets different criteria. But I think that it is something your eating disorder can use to say it's not as big of a deal. Oh, absolutely. And that and that's just so our listeners know. Yeah. I, that's kind of what I'm doing here. Yeah. Being that a lot devil's of people fall advocate. Into that, you know, category. And we were talking about this that most people with eating disorders are not underweight. Right. You know, per, per BMI, they would be in a normal or above normal. Well, and that's that's the next question I had. If I'm above or at the normal weight, then I don't really need treatment, do I? You absolutely so do. <laughs> and I just, I guess I kind of just want to apologize for the entire culture <laughs> for this population. <laughs> for humans. Yes, you do need help. And our culture has done you a disservice by only showing very, very underweight people as anorexic. Their anorexia comes in all shapes and sizes. Restrictive eating disorders come in all shapes and sizes. And a huge predictor of or warning sign for anorexia is a person in a larger body type. Like, 
that is a warning sign when that person starts restricting because more than likely they have been told by other people in their lives that they need to lose weight just for the purpose of losing weight when there was actually nothing wrong with your body whatsoever. And so then these same people who have had the larger body type lost weight are praised and told all of these wonderful things by their friends and family who are well-meaning and don't realize how sick this person is actually becoming. Definitely. All because they don't look like the stereotypical of image of anorexia that we see on magazines, on movies, TV shows, etc. Yeah, and I remember talking with Myra about some of this stuff, and she told me, you're saying a lot of the same things that my anorexic clients say, but you're not 93 pounds, so I can't put you in that higher level care because you don't fit in that. Mm-hmm. But that was doing a lot of the same things. Right. The mind can be in a very similar place, you know, despite right. what the body is doing. And someone that has, you know, lost, even if you've lost weight and you're still not underweight, there are medical complications with that. And I think that is confused sometimes. So how are eating disorders dangerous other than the obvious reason of starvation? Like physically or just all the way, all the way around? <laughs> All I mean, because I think that's what people think. It's just, yeah. that's the only reason it's dangerous. But there are a lot more reasons. There are a lot more reasons, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so bone density issues, early onset osteopenia, osteoporosis, cardiac issues, including heart attacks, cardiac arrest, um, mm-hmm. just weakening of the heart in general, brain issues. So eating disorders can significantly decrease the amount of gray matter in your brain. And for adolescents who develop eating disorders can prevent your brain from fully forming, which is terrifying. Meaning that you, yeah, like if you start your eating disorder in adolescence, your brain may not fully heal. That's really, really scary. And you can't get that back. Like you can't get that time frame back. Fertility issues, um, that is historically, we have said that that is for females. But as we are getting more and more statistics on males, I'm wondering if it is for the human population, if it's going to be for both. But we know for sure that it is for females. Marked times of amenorrhea, meaning loss of menstruation, loss of period, anything greater than six months can lead to fertility issues. But even as we're talking about the exercise addiction and all of those things, when you're in a pattern of extreme excessive exercise and not eating, that can cause very high cortisol levels, which has a lot to do with fertility. So there's lots of ways around that, not just the amenorrhea piece. It affects your hormones. Estrogen, which is period stuff. There's, I mean, I was just thinking about complications of bulimia. I mean, obviously with electrolytes and stuff, but Barrett's esophagus, where they mess up the lining other mm-hmm. esophagus. And yeah. isn't there a higher level of suicide associated with eating disorders? Oh, absolutely. I can't say the statistic off the top of my head, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And then refeeding syndrome. I feel like that is one of the things that can be very confusing to people is when a person who has not been eating or has been in starvation mode starts eating again. A lot of times, people around them, family, friends, will breathe a sigh of relief with, hey, like, 
they're eating, maybe we don't need help anymore. Right. But actually, you do need help. You do need to be monitored because there is something called refeeding syndrome. That is very, very scary. And so we found out about it during World War II. It was during a concentration camp. People in the concentration camps were starved. And then for the survivors of those camps who were able to go back home, start eating again within 48 to 72 hours, a lot of them just died and we didn't know why. And that is due to the electrolyte and hormonal imbalances, specifically potassium, phosphorus. Those are the things that we're looking for. Okay, the next thought, what exercise is healthy? I mean, in moderation. Like those things, you know? Well, how can exercise be unhealthy, though? <laughs> because if you're doing it out of balance and you're not eating enough, you know, for the exercise that you're doing, or it doesn't even matter if it's not a physical issue. If it's a mental issue, if you're rigid, if you're obsessed, that's not living in balance and being quote-unquote healthy. Like I said earlier, if you need to do it instead of, like, I like to exercise or this makes me feel good or, like, that kind of thing, like, I need to do this to feel good about myself. Like, that starts to get into some, if it's the only way that you can, like, cope. You know, people are like, I, you know, I feel like to go for a run when I'm stressed. I'm like, that's great, but you need other things you can do. You do? Can't be your only thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah I, I would like to do, like I said, a whole thing about the exercise. Yeah. Okay, how about this one? Can't I just handle this on my own? You can try. <laughs> it's really hard. It's really hard even with, professionals helping you in a support system absolutely yeah it's hard to change i mean it's hard for anyone to change something they've been doing and when you have a disorder that is biological and mental and you know all the things kind of working against you in a way it's just it's just really hard it is yeah and i mean in all seriousness like you you can try and some people are able to work through some of these things with their support network and their family and friends, but that's very rare. That is not the norm. And most people, because this is such a pervasive illness, do end up needing the help of professionals. And that is not a failure of you or of your family members or support network that you need the help of professionals. You would not be courageous. Yeah, it is being Mm -hmm. courageous. And we talked about the medical model a lot in our first episode, but it's the same idea. Like to me, that's just the same as saying like, I can get over this other disease that I have. I can get over diabetes. I can get over cancer by myself, right? No, like you wouldn't say that. You need help. Yeah, and help with professionals. I tell people this a lot. Like you didn't ask for this, but now that we have identified it, it is your responsibility in a way. I love Mm -hmm. that word, but to work now. And I hate that this is something that's part of your life or been put on your plate, but now what do we do? Right. Yeah. Well, and a lot of it involves reframing some of your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I can say for sure that I never would have done that on my own. Mm-hmm. Certain things. Yeah. 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 Okay. No one else is going through what I'm going through. So no one's going to understand. Like family and friends. Family, friends, you guys, anybody. <laughs> I mean, don't you think that a lot of people think they're the only ones doing this this way? Oh, yeah. That's why a lot of eating disorders are treated in a group setting. 
because there's something to say about the connection and hearing that you're not quote unquote like special like this is the you know like when you know I've been in group where it's like someone will be like the eating story tells me this and someone else is like oh my gosh and it's like yeah. the novelty kind of it's like hmm maybe this really is a like thing it's not yeah. just you know what I mean mm-hmm. something that's in my brain and there's power there I think by identifying that for sure is fully recovered actually possible or will I have to deal with this for the rest of my life? Such a tough question. Yeah, we do believe it's possible. Absolutely it's possible. It's hard. It is very, very difficult. And it doesn't mean that the eating disorder doesn't come and go. It doesn't mean that the eating disorder voice is just gone, that it just magically disappears you might still hear that voice for quite some time. And that doesn't mean that you're not recovered. It just means like it's still there. It still exists. But in recovery, you have the tools to fight it. You have the resources to make a different choice. You don't have to listen. Right. Mm-hmm. But I'm just trying to be healthy. I'm sure you hear that one. Just so Oh, yeah. Sad. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a mask that you can sort of use this for sure. Mm-hmm. Dresses it up real pretty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, and like you said, it's all over society. Right. And it's so sad because that I really do believe that for a large portion of the eating disorder population, that's where it started. Mm-hmm. It was not malintent. They did not think that it was going to get to the place that it ended up getting to in their lives. It started out innocently, right. and it grew into something that was much more difficult to manage. Okay, one more question. If I have an eating disorder, eating food... Why do I have to work on feelings? <laughs> the classic answer is not about the food. <laughs> Which I mean, in some ways it is. But we know that for people that struggle with eating disorders and for, di- and for different reasons, that, you know, it may be an issue with control or a way to feel better about themselves. It might be a self-esteem thing, all of that. The, the classic counselor answers, like, we have to get under there and say why so you know if I'm working with someone and it's like when I restrict I feel more confident about myself Mm -hmm. it's like listen I'm totally on board with you feeling confident with yourself let's find another way to work on confidence so that we're working on that and giving you what you really want but not using the disordered behaviors you know well that makes sense I mean it's it's definitely made a difference it but like I told you last time, you know, that's not something I wanted to do. And I, w- I would think most people don't want to, don't want to dig into what's right. really going on. Let's Smart. just fix the food. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that that's the idea of like putting a bandaid on a huge gaping wound. Like if you're not getting to the core of the issue, if you're not getting to the feelings and the issues that started the need for control through eating, then just eating isn't going to fix the issue. And it will continue in one form or another. Yeah. Yeah, so like we were saying earlier, like, can eating disorders morph? Well, maybe it starts out with one eating disorder, but then turns into another one, or turns into alcoholism or substance Mm -hmm. abuse. If we're not getting to the core issues, we're not fully healing what's really going on under there. Right. Anything else you'd like to add? Everyone listening should know everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you ladies so much for your time and for your information and knowledge. We definitely appreciate it. Thanks, Rachel. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode of Wholehearted Recovery. Please remember that our podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only. It's not a substitute for treatment. If you feel that you need support, please seek the guidance of a trained professional. Also, if you would like some resources, please see our website at www.wholeheartedrecovery.podbean.com. See you next time.